Well, hello. My name is Jeff Watson, and you are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. I am your grateful and gracious host, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I just thought of something. I really wish that I could have been Ed McMahon in a, in a previous life. Perhaps I was. Just a second banana. Every, no one cares about the second banana until they bring the heat, which is exactly what he did sometimes. At any rate, welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. As you can tell, I am winging this. There's nothing planned, folks. Just off the top of my little cranium, we have been doing more episodes, more episodes, more episodes. I've been recording nonstop with shockingly brilliant people. My goodness. I feel like a like an intellectual ant sometimes when I'm talking to these people. And it's just, it's been wonderful. I get to hear their experiences and I get to hear their strengths and I get to hear their hope and I get to hear their tragedy and their successes and the right. It's just fantastic. I, as a therapist, I am so fascinated by the, by the uh, I guess, the intersection of creativity and psychology and what the muse looks like. And that's kind of what this podcast is. Um, I just love talking to creatives. It's just such a fascinating world. Uh, the creatives think completely differently than anybody else. They see things differently for better or for worse, because it can be a curse to be an artist. Uh, trust me on this one. So there was an interesting conversation I had that I was thinking about. I was kind of going through some of the older episodes and there was one, uh, with this guy named Asher and Asher is a rabbi and he is also a addiction specialist and he's just a fantastic human being. Love the conversation with him. But there's one thing in particular that I kind of wanted to pull out that I really thought was impressive. And it was a quote that, uh, I think it was he found it or I found it, but at any rate, it's about this thing called radical amazement. So it says, our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. And the kicker here is to be spiritual is to be amazed. And I love that. I absolutely love that. That child, those child eyes. And you can see just a different perspective and a different way of looking at it. Of Oh my God, how beautiful is this world? And it's the world can be terrible too as well, clearly. But at any rate. That is incredibly important to me. I've sort of mentioned this in previous podcasts, but I went through a pretty bananas trauma about eight years ago, a series of them actually. And in doing so, I adapted and I learned and I just did whatever I possibly could to keep sane. And sometimes it didn't even work that well. But I have learned about this process of radical amazement. I'm incredibly honored to speak to any of these people and the other thing I thought was, uh, it's just been fun as I get to take all the lessons that I've learned and hopefully pass them on as the therapist that I currently am. Enough about me. I had a fantastic conversation with this next one. My goodness, she's great. Isabel Dion. And I say it just like that because I'm happy that I got it right when I told her it because my high school French, I guess, paid off somehow. So Isabel is just such an amazing woman, and you'll hear about her in a little bit after I am done rambling. But she's an award-winning director. She's a producer. Uh, she's had four of her scripts picked up just recently, uh, and she's got some stuff coming out in 2022. And she is a she does mostly psychological thrillers and suspense. That's kind of her forte, which is mine as well. And she's extremely into themes of empowerment for women and the Me Too movement and uh, women overcoming the impossible. Those are really important for her. And you'll hear that 
when I am done, uh, but you also went to Laos. Their entire story about going out to Laos and building a bookstore in the middle of the jungle for 10 years, that's that's worth it to listen to. Ignore everything I'm saying and listen to that. And as always, I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did making it. That's what I got. Off to the races. Hi, everyone who is uh, faithfully listening to this podcast. My name, again, is Jeff Watson, and I have the lovely fortune of speaking with Ms. Isabel Dion. <laughs> Am I saying that right? Yeah, perfect. Was it really? Yeah. I just I just adopted my French chef accent that I made up. Yeah, it sounded more even more French than when I say it. <laughs> 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 so again, it. you know, thank you so much for doing this. I know that you and I have been talking for a little bit about uh, about getting this uh, on the books, and I am extremely excited. And if you've listened to the podcast, or if you haven't, there is a first question that I always like to ask, and that is simply, what is the first thing that ever inspired you when you were a kid? Was it a movie, a book, a TV show, a person? What do you got? Oh, <sighs> The first thing that inspired me as a kid, I mean, it's going to sound so nerdy, but it was the dictionary. <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, the French, we have this uh, called uh, Petit Larousse, which is like, um, it's, a, it's a dictionary, but they have like the, the half of the dictionary are people and the other half is, uh, it's like a small dictionary, but it is, uh, you know, with images. And as a kid, oh my God, I spent hours like reading it and looking at the names of the people and and I would make up stories from words that I found interesting you know and so yes I I guess the dictionary would be the first thing that I remember Uh, I mean besides obviously movies and and uh, you know and books my house was full Uh, I was very lucky to be born in a house full of books and the love of cinema um, in a town that is not really, you know, uh, known for that, you know, very small town in Canada, but, uh, lucky to have, uh, a mom who, and a dad, uh, who, uh, love culture. That's wonderful. What did you, just out of curiosity on the movie thing, what, tell me about that. Where did that start? Uh, well, the, you know, my love of movies started with the, uh, a magazine, actually. My parent, my mom used to collect these, uh, magazine called Cine Revue, which was like a, a French magazine about cinema. And inside the, and they had like piles of them underneath the television. And I was definitely a, you know, a seventies TV kid. I watched a lot of TV and they had like uh, those piles of, of magazines. So while I would watch TV, I would flip through these magazine and they did this very interesting thing where they would have pages of like the, basically like the movie roles of like scenes. Of course they would skip, you know, but they would recreate scenes with the, and you could see the film, you know, like the squares with the, you know, like this, the films around and they, you would, they would have like entire scenes of movies. Uh, 
with the dialogues, but in little bubbles, like uh, comic books, but for huh. movies. Huh. And most of them were in black and white. And they had like the back was a movie star with the name. So like really young, I could identify like all the movie stars <laughs> from, <laughs> from Stallone to John Travolta, Meryl Streep. I just knew them because they had like the back with the face and the name. And I was just like, be fascinated with this. And of course, going to the movies. But I think that's, like I was fascinated with Hollywood and anything that was movie making from, I think I was age three when I said I was going to move to Hollywood. Um, <laughs> but I think those magazines were definitely uh, a big, uh, you know, fascination for me. Yeah. It's funny. I just, I just remembered this. Um, one of the first films that I saw from the French Canadian side was, uh, and I'm a big fan of this guy is Guy Madon or Guy Madon. Guy Madden? Guy Madon? Am I saying that right? Guy Madon? Uh, I don't know him. Oh, you should look him up. He's a, yeah. he's an experimental filmmaker. Um, he did this one called The Saddest Music in the World with uh, Isabel Rossellini, who he worked with a lot later. Um, just magical. like Almost like a German expressionism kind of thing that he does. Oh, that's really interesting. I don't even know him. Oh, my God. <laughs> he's, apparently, he's your hometown guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of, I mean, Quebec has a very distinct, uh, obviously, cinema voice because, you know, uh, there's fun funding in Canada and uh -huh. uh, Quebec is a very distinctive culture. So, of course, I grew up with uh, Quebec movies. I don't know this one, but... Um, you know, there was very, you know, Denis Arcand. And then, you know, my favorite of all time is uh, Jean-Claude Lauzon, who uh, unfortunately perished at a young age. Huh. And after that, like Jean-Marc Vallée, of course, with the movie Crazy, was a very distinctive. Uh, I think Jean-Marc Vallée was the first one who, like, merged, like, um, you know, world music, like David Bowie's music into, uh, you know, a Quebec story. Huh. And... um yeah, I love Jean-Marc Valley. Unfortunately, <laughs> he passed also very young. So unfortunate. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, I, I do know that Canada, and I'd like for you to speak on this because I know a little bit about it. And that Canada is really good about funding the arts, specifically the CanCon laws. If I'm not mistaken, those mandated or still mandate a certain amount of Canadian artists to be played on radio. Uh, they have a lot of laws to protect. I mean, and also we have all the laws to protect the French and all the laws to protect the, the Canadian content. But Quebec is a very distinctive uh, culture because we're, you know, well, I mean, when I grew up, we were six millions in the, in the, you know, hundreds and millions of Anglophones. Mm. And I come from the Frenchest area of Canada. 98% of the people don't speak oh. English. Don't speak English. So I learned English when I was uh, 17. Wow. And um, yeah, so I had to move. I moved to Toronto to learn English. And uh, um, so people in Quebec, the, the, you know, everywhere in the world, usually if you look at American movies, they're like the movies, uh, American movies are number one TV, you know, American TV shows translated in, in whatever language is number one. But in Quebec, people do watch uh TV made in Canada, made in Quebec, movies made in Quebec a lot. And, um, you know, and read, uh, you know, in school, of course, you have to read all the Quebec uh, classics. So it's, and the theater is very, I mean, inc you know, some of the best uh, playwrights uh, and, and uh, director, you know, mm. uh, very distinctive theater scene. 
Yeah, I, you know, as a as a uh, up until recently, perhaps as a typical American, I was like, eh, Canada is basically the stepchild of America, like the forgotten stepchild. <laughs> Don't say that to Canadians. I know it's a terrible thing to say to somebody, but <laughs> but it's you know, I mean, this typical Americanism, right? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll go off track for a heartbeat. I'll tell you my favorite. One of my favorite jokes is, uh, what do you call a person that knows three languages, Isabel? Trilingual. What do you know a person that knows two languages, Isabel? Bilingual. <laughs> you know, a person knows one language. American. Americans. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, in Canada, actually, a lot of Canadians don't speak two languages. Quebec uh, is obviously more bilingual because we, you know, we don't have a choice. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, being surrounded, uh, and and I, I like that. That's the fact that I mean, if you go to Montreal, most people pe- do speak two languages. Um, but you know, when we talk about, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to get into politics, but you know, Quebec and Canada are very different cultures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I would understand why, you know, Americans think Canada may not have a distinctive culture, which they do, Of course, they do. <clears throat> but you know, Quebec is a whole thing on its own because we are so influenced by the French, but at the same time, so influenced by the Americans. So it's kind of an American French culture. Which is very interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, we have such a monoculture out here, especially, well, all of America, I think, but that's just my own personal opinion. But moving on, because I do want to talk about, um, you know, I've, I, I was kind of looking around and it, psychological thrillers and suspense seem to be uh, your thing, uh, among other things, clearly. But I, I really loved this, actually. I read this uh, somewhere. That your your favorite themes generally are female revenge, empowerment, Me Too, and women overcoming the impossible. I love that, and I want to hear more. Yeah, and actually, the woman overcoming the impossible has become a theme that I do thrillers. Or now I, I'm right, I'm working on two coming of age. Uh, I mean, based on my own personal experiences, but. Uh, yeah, I think this is becoming, uh, you know, as as you write through the years, eventually you find your voice and you find your themes. And I think this is um, now becoming my theme. I really love uh, the underdog and I love the, you know, it makes a really big arc, you know, when somebody overcomes the impossible and that's become, uh, and, you know, I mean, you know, reflecting on my own life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from being a little kid and, and she couldn't me from French and then moving to, you know, obviously Hollywood, I would say that's pretty much overcoming the impossible. <laughs> I so. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, it's like, a, you know, usually your, your art reflects your life and um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, definitely uh, is something that I care about. And now when I look at stories, do I want to tell this story or this story? If it doesn't have these themes, sometimes I just, you know, I'll, I'll put them aside and, and pick a story that has this kind of of, uh, of theme in it because yeah. it's, it's where my voice finds its, you know, where that's where I can sing, <laughs> which I, yeah. you know, I can, I can not literally sing, but you know, <laughs> I can make my story sing. Exactly. You know, I was wondering this actually, because I, I've spoken to a few uh, writers uh, more and more and, there was one person uh, named Sadie Dean, and she's a uh, great screenwriter. And uh, and we had this fascinating talk where she said that when she has a character, when she writes a character, and ha- that character has some tragedy befall them, or there, there, there's there's some negative thing that happened to them, 
that she gets a little hurt. She gets a little guilty only because she's imbued herself so much in the character. Yeah, when you write horror and thriller, I think you take kind of pleasure in that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm moving away slowly from thrillers and horror, but who knows? I might be, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking for my next project now, and I might be going back. But uh, yeah, I think when you write write horror and thriller, you take pleasure in uh, torturing your characters. Right. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if I if I, I think I turned the pain into a, a pleasure. <laughs> what it sounds like um it's it's shot in florida is basically what it is um so you put uh okay so you i also noticed even on your linkedin you call yourself a captivating storyteller and since that's my shtick i want to hear more about that because and i guess this is a subset question um because i often say that it is uh, in order to be a good writer you have to do one of two things you have to a Tell the story, whatever that means, if that's film, poetry, music, etc. But the more difficult thing is to find it. And you mentioned a second ago finding stories. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I don't know if you find the stories or the stories find you. Right. That's the <laughs> but, point. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think... Uh... I mean, when I, you know, what I'm saying about Captain, you know, I, I forgot that I said that about myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like scratching my head. But yeah, no, I, I, um, so the thing about me as a person, as a human, you know, we're human first. I, I love to live, like, I, I have this quote about Oscar Wilde about living, or Emizora about living out loud, you know, like to live fully. And that has definitely been, uh, something that is very important to me because I think we only get one shot. Yeah. So it's important to me, like, to live fully. I've traveled. I've, I've had, you know, I take, I love adventure and I love to, to take on challenges. And I'm not afraid of changing course, you know, if I'm heading one way and decide, okay, I've done enough of that. I want to try something else because I think, you know, we have a certain amount of time and I want to try many things. And so I think, and so I love to live fully. So when I, and, and which means, you know, feel a lot. And this is what I try to bring in my, my writing. You know, my goal is when, you know, people read my stuff is that they can feel. Mm. And um, so I think that's that's probably what I meant by that. But, yeah, I, for me, it's important to feel and to bring that the feeling in the writing. And I, and it's something that I see sometimes is lacking in a lot. Like sometimes people tell stories and the plot is there. But do you feel are you feeling the story, in, mm. you know, just even by writing, uh, reading the screenplay? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's maybe where my my strength has been um, into my writing is that, you know, I put a lot of feeling into it. Right. And, you know, there's that old phrase, you cannot transmit what you haven't got. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. And that's why a lot of people, perhaps some of their writing isn't necessarily emotional, really have a lot of heft and depth because they don't have it themselves. And, yeah. and I'm not saying they're a bad writer necessarily because they can put words together. But as you know, and the thing I find interesting too is that uh, sense memory lasts far outpaces what they call event memory. You know, just the little things you're, you're going through your day, you're driving, those things go away. But it's the thing that you're emotionally connected to, which is why people can remember things from decades ago, you know, past. 
Well, it's funny you mentioned this because, you know, I started out as an actress and, uh, you know, I know that the method is getting a bad rap now, but I did, uh, you know, I was very fascinated with the method and I went to Lee Strasberg in New York because I was fascinated with the actor studio. That was like my dream, you know, to be surrounded with uh, actors that, you know, uh, committed to the work. So I did a lot of sensory work as an actress and uh yeah it definitely felt you know a, a lot mm-hmm. um so from that work into from acting to writing um being real mm-hmm. and being authentic has definitely always been part of my uh, my process or my my search yes and authenticity may not pay the bills unfortunately god i wish it did but you can make an impact that way because people just People can tell, well, I take it back. I was going to say people can tell bullshit, but then again, 80, what, 74 million people who voted for the other guy? <laughs> don't. Yeah, not. Let's not get into that. We're not, gonna, we're not going there. Trust yes, me. We're not going yes, there. Yes. But um, I do think that, I think, well, first of all, I do kind of want to bounce around here. Um, tell me a little bit about, I, I saw you wrote for uh, Strange Events, which is kind of a horror thing, Correct. Yeah, well, they, they, uh, it's, uh, I did a short film and they, uh, they, they bought it and then repackaged it into, uh, I think they, 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 uh, they repackaged a, a bunch of short films together. Um, so that, you know, that was lucky for me that, uh, I was able to sell my short. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so it was a distribution uh, package. Um, this one, but that film, the original, the short film was uh, something that I produced and directed called Let Go. Right. Which I want to go into actually, um, because it, it, it looks like that the themes are about loss and the concept of letting go, which is completely up my alley. Would you mind discussing that a bit? Cause the second I saw the words let go and then I kind of saw what it was about, it, it just lit me up. Yeah. And, you know, this film is about uh, a mom uh, dealing with grief, losing a child and, uh, and then doing the unthinkable, um, and not being able to let go. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, to be honest, this was an exercise for me because I was writing horror and thriller and, you know, what I was talking about being authentic. And, uh, so I basically wrote, my biggest fear, you know, and if you, you know, the, in the movie, both mm. of the, you know, the actors are my children, my own mm. children. Um, and so it was like, what are you the most afraid of? And it was so hard. It was so hard to write, like even just the, the, the unthinkable of thinking, you know, that one of your child could die. And it was such a hard thing to do. Like, and it was mostly an exercise for me as a creator, because I thought once I wrote this, there's nothing else that could scare me or that could be off limit because I was going to tackle my biggest fear. And to be honest, like even before I started writing, I, you know, I don't pray and I don't, you know, I'm not, um, you know, uh, religious of any kind, but I had to almost like, I did a, like, I, I did a prayer just to of protection mm-hmm. because I became like, okay, these are not my children. It is a fiction. 
but I did have to like almost do like a protection mantra. And I know it's like a superstitious thing, but, but I got scared because it scared me. And it even scared me to go into that um, fictitious world. But I had to, um, every time I wrote, I had to, to, you know, okay, uh, this is not my children and I can enter this creative world. So it was an incredible um, exercise. I think as an artist, as a writer, it, I grew a lot because, you know, after that I could write anything. I, I didn't, you know, um, and it made me stronger, but it was a very difficult um, process. Of course it was. And it's interesting you use the word prayer because I was just thinking about this, that I could say from my own perspective, from what you just said, that the film or the short could have been a meditation on your fear, right? Because prayer and meditation are interchangeable in most respects, but the entire thing, not just an individual prayer, but the entire thing could have been a meditation on your own fears, which you dug deep as an, as a, as an X method or current method. Yeah. You, you dug deep, you tore up the, uh, the carpet and looked underneath and that can be absolutely terrifying. But I love the fact God, I'm going into being a therapist right now. Excuse me for a second. <laughs> but I love the fact that you were able to understand that now you've looked at your biggest fear and therefore you really have nothing else to fear anymore. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I mean, when I was 18 years old, I had this paper written, action combats fear or kills fear in French in my room, like taped everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, and it became my motto like anytime I feel afraid of doing something I usually do it because and I even tell my kids this now like okay if you're afraid just do it because you'll see it will disappear but if you don't do it that fear just grows and overtakes you whatever it is I mean I'll just say like you know we've been jumping around but yeah like when I did my trip around the world and I ended up in Laos yeah. I wasn't going to Laos Laos was scaring me I read all the books and I don't know how they describe Laos it doesn't represent reality but it scared me I thought like military and I was traveling alone as a girl and and then I met these people and they're like, oh, we're going to go to Laos. You should come with us. And we're going to go to, you know, um, the day after tomorrow. And, you know, and, and told me all about what Laos that sounded wonderful. And then I realized, oh, shit, I'm scared. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm scared. And when I realized what the moment I realized I was really afraid of going there. I packed my bags and I left them a note the next morning and I left without them. And I was like, you know, I got to do this alone and I'll meet you, you know, in Luang Prabang because I knew I was afraid. I knew I was afraid to be, to travel alone there. So that was exactly what I needed to do. And it changed my life. I mean, I stayed in, you know, I was supposed to be there two days and I ended up there 10 years. Obviously you and I have talked earlier and I really want to find out more about that Laos thing. So I, I went, I left LA. I was living in LA as an actress and, you know, hitting a certain milestone where things weren't moving forward. I had a breakup and everything, you know, it was just like my whole life not going the way I wanted. And so I decided, okay, well, I'll do a bucket listing. I'll just go travel the world and figure out if there's another place in the world where I belong or something else I need to be doing. And so I sold everything within a few days and bought a ticket 
and for around the world and decided to go travel for a year. I mean, it was a year, but I expected as like, I'm completely like completely open. The world was a blank canvas and I was completely open to go live and do something else. Cause all my life I wanted to be an actress since I was like three years old. And, you know, I ended up, you know, at 30 years old and I was like, okay, what do I do now? If my dream didn't come true and you know, what do you do? So I was like, okay, well, let, let's see what life brings to me. And so I traveled and about midway, I felt a little frustrated because, you know, when you travel, everything is catered to tourism. Mm. So you don't really get, unless you really push, it's really hard to get the real authentic experience and live with the locals. And it's quite hard. They, they, you know, they make everything. So you, you know, you don't get the real thing. And I was getting a little sick of that. And then I got to Laos, which just reopened after the communist era. So it was very different and not really tourist ready. So, so you had access to people and there wasn't that many tourists there at that time. And so I got to meet people and fell in love with Luang Prabang, which is the uh, ancient royal capital. Huh? Uh, it's UNESCO. It's a little peninsula in the north of Laos and um, fell in love. I mean, with the place and the people and realized at the time, you know, I'm a, I'm a big reader and I had this bag full of books and I was looking for a bookstore and I never been to a place that felt more like it felt like I was in a novel, <laughs> you know, and, and there was no bookstore. And so basically uh, within seven days left, I had a, I rented a house. I, I had a partner and I went to get books. <laughs> Wow. And uh, and then opened up a month later, fixed up a, an old house, and uh, a month later I opened uh, the bookstore, and uh, and through that I befriended this young Lao kid who loved books, and I wanted to learn, and you know, and um, eventually became his guardian, and uh, so this is the story of one of my scripts that I'm writing now, and. And now we'll be writing the book because I've made the decision that I'm, I'm going to write the book. I, I got in um, uh, a residency, an artist residency in uh, La Napoule in, uh, in the French Riviera this in the fall. And uh, I'm going to go there for a month and I will write. I mean, I will start writing the book. So that was like the trigger um event that I needed to push me because I realized I'm scared to write a novel. So now I have to do it. <laughs> but it's it's the perfect story. So I'm you know I'm going to repeat a little bit about our conversation a while ago, but um, just to do this here officially, you know, and I've been extremely open about this. You, you know this about the so eight years ago, my wife completed suicide, and it was you know just monstrously horrible. It was just shockingly epic and Wagnerian and just incredibly fucking dramatic, but. My very wise therapist said, just one day she just goes, I don't know what to do. I'm freaking out. And she goes, just go eat somewhere and be of service. Like go to India and work at a soup kitchen. Just figure it out. And I got lucky in an old high school friend of mine uh, lived in Cambodia and he was donating to the local orphanage. So I went out to the orphanage and I worked there for a couple of weeks and it just reset that button. In fact, it didn't reset it, quite frankly. It actually transformed the button, so to speak. Because I was living with 14, 20 kids who had absolutely nothing. You know this. Rice, fish, 
that was it, you know, playing with a deflated soccer ball. Their families were beheaded by the local military. That just is horrifying stuff. And yet they were dead present, present the whole time, grateful, beautiful, charming. And it just gave me this incredible experience of what gratitude and, and, and centeredness looks like. And I'm, I'm sure you experienced that in Laos now. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, um, amazing because you finally, you saw people that had nothing. I mean, kids would play with their flip-flops. Like, they had nothing. And they were the happiest people I've ever met, you know? And mm. it's like, when you see that, you know, you come from a world where you have everything and you're not happy and you're looking the meaning of life of some kind. Mm. And then you go there and everybody's like so happy. And I, and it's weird because, you know, I was there for 10 years and through the years, you know, the internet, uh, they fixed the road. So, and they had, they started making these smaller like motorbikes and phones. And, and so they started to have more things. And in my opinion, I started seeing them not being as happy as they were before when I got there in 2001, you know? Mm -hmm. And it made me sad. Like, I was like, the more they have, the less happy because then they have to, you know, they start, you know, cost of living goes up. They have to be, you know, they have to have more to have a good life. And, 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 and it perpetuates this, uh, the rat race, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm hoping, I mean, now I, I, I heard, you know, because of the pandemic, Laos has been closed off and I'm hoping that it will kind of reset a little bit, you know, of the, of this thing. And I'm hoping for the whole world actually, but I don't know if we're, we have very short memories. So. No. And it's really colonization by technology, right? Yeah. It, it's the same. It's manifest destiny through, through technology unintended or intended. I'm sure. It's a little of both. Yeah. Because now they see what everybody else has, you yeah. know, it's like you have access to see once you start seeing, Hey, they have this. Why am I happy with what I have? I've got nothing. You know, right. it's like, and, and so it's, yeah, definitely. But that is definitely one of the reasons I, I felt in love with Laos and, and the mindfulness, of course. I mean, they're very present. Yeah. I mean, still, you know, still now. That, I mean, it's, you know, they're Buddhists, so it's it's a different approach to it, life. It certainly is. But I think part of the problem with this manifest destiny by technology is the Western world is so seductive, right? You know, they've been piping in American television for decades, you know, for, forever, basically. And it's so seductive to be seeing these rich people and they got boats and they got, you know, smiling families. And, and I could under, I never really thought about this, but I can completely understand why a second or third world country would be looking at us like it's an idyllic, uh, like Valhalla almost. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, in a way it's like, uh, you know, the little girl in Shikudimi dreaming of California and Los Angeles and Hollywood, you know, like. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's the gold, you know, it's something we don't have and you, you think it's better than what, you know, but you don't see the reality behind it. You know, I have hope for Laos though, because, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of a landlocked country. So because they don't have beaches, it, <laughs> it helps not being ruined. No, it's true. It's, it's, you know, Thailand is, uh, you know, very lucky to have beaches, but at the same time, it brings in, uh, different, a different type of, uh, uh, tourism. Ah, I, I'm, and, you know, back on that, for a heartbeat at least, is it's that idea of the collectivist society versus the rugged individualism of Western world, 
you know, that, that term rugged individualism, you may or may not know this came from Teddy Roosevelt back in the day, the twenties or so when he was president. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in the American DNA because of the revolutionary war and, you know, we're individuals, but unfortunately with that comes a lack of connection in a familial area. Absolutely. That's what terrifies me, quite frankly. And there's drawbacks to that. I mean, I, I, as a therapist, I work with uh, some minority cultures who are very embedded in family. And the problem is that they don't really want to come to therapy sometimes because the family says, oh, just keep it in the family. So there's a little bit of a kind of a plus and minus to it. But it's just experiences like you had in Laos and experiences like I, I had in Cambodia where it's just presence. And I think a lot of it has to do with the Buddhism inherent in their countries it's crazy how like time feels very very different in laos the time feels completely different like they like i spent 10 years there but sometimes it's like it feels like i was there for like <laughs> 30 30 years mm -hmm. you know? because every day is so like meaningful and so like yeah if you're present time doesn't feel the same and that's probably why it felt like the 50s when I was there in uh -huh. the 2000s and suddenly time started to speed up you know with the phones and the, the internet you know like being uh, more accessible because I mean they had internet in 2001 but very hard to access and very very slow like it would take 10 minutes to send an email wow so there's no browsing and there's no TikTok at that right. speed, right? Right. <laughs> but now they have high-speed internet. So, you know, like the world speed up. I, I said for five years I lived in the 50s and then we went from 1950 to 2010 in like less than five. Yeah, right. Literally. But imagine these people. Like, you know, when I – like like there's a, a thing where the Rolling Stones were playing in Bangkok. And they decided to come to Luang Prabang. You know, it's a UNESCO town and it's well known. So they rented a whole floor of a hotel. <laughs> nobody knew who they were. <laughs> and so they realized like they rented this whole thing, but nobody cared who they were. <laughs> and after that, Mick Jagger came back to Luang Prabang, rented a small room in the small hotel by the Mekong with only one security guard, one car. And I heard from people who saw him, he would walk around the city and in the town and nobody cared. Nobody knew who he was. Right. You know? And and I can imagine, can you imagine you're Mick Jagger and you never have this anonymity and you, no. you're in this little town, but that's how it was. You know, there was a poster of uh, the Beatles in one of the restaurants I used to go to and I bring my Laos staff and they didn't even know who they were. Interesting. The only person they knew, which is interesting, they knew Michael Jackson. Fascinating. Yeah, they knew Michael Jackson. But they, that was basically the only star they knew. On a similar note, I will say this, actually, because it's amazing how, culture, how music specifically kind of pierced those barriers. When I was in Cambodia, I, uh, there were these beautiful, beautiful children, and they, they taught me how to play guitar or play some Khmer songs, local language, in uh and on guitar, and then I bought them a guitar because theirs was kind of broken up. And then they're we're going back and forth, and then all of a sudden this kid starts playing the intro to uh, Enter Sandman from Metallica. And I look at him and I go, "Is that Metallica?" And he kind of like laughed and giggled and nodded his head. I'm like, I'm in the middle of the jungle, and there's no <laughs> English, not one word of English, and yet this kid knows Metallica. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, it's. Uh...
And that's my point about the sense memory thing, right? Because obviously that meant something to him and it connected with him in some possible, in some strange way. I mean, the funny thing is, it's like, how did they have, you know, like how, how did this music, you know, reach this person? You know, I mean, now, of course, they have TikTok and they have phones and stuff. Sure. But at the time, it's like, how do these things are reaching? You know, uh, one of the scenes in my, my script that I included in the script, because I thought it was so adorable, uh, this kid, some side that I, I, you know, mentored, uh, was reading Harry Potter first time huh? and and uh you know they, they fly you know they play the the, the quidditch and uh, they fly on brooms right yeah and he comes to me and he says wow like in london they have flying brooms and i'm like <laughs> no so i'm sorry this is fantasy like it's so funny like but he was convinced that this is what life was and like i mean that's how closed off from the world they were at that moment You know, if, yeah. and this kid is like, we're talking about like a 16 year old kid, yeah. you know, and quite like incredibly smart, but he just thought like <laughs> the flying broom. And I, I mean, that always left the, such an impression on me. I was like, <laughs> okay, I got to put this in my script. <laughs> you know, that actually, that leads me to another question. Um, you just said, you know, I got to put this in my script. Do you have like a working list in your head sometimes of, oh, I got to add that somewhere. I got to put that theme in here somewhere. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I do it all the time, but, um, I don't, I don't take notes a lot, which I should because I forget. Uh, and then it comes back to me like uh, in different ways. But huh? yeah, I mean, I, I think I, even when I was going through that, what I, I went through in Laos, I always kind of knew, like, I was like, okay, I'm living in a book right now. Like I could, like, right. I, I don't know, but I knew like, and, and I have about five different stories uh, that I'm like, now I have two that I wrote already, but I have three more based on life events. But I think as they happen, I kind of like, I've always had this mind of a writer. So even when I go through them, I'm always like, Oh, this, this would make a great book. This would make it, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, definitely. So is it safe to say you find the theme or maybe the hook and then work around that? No, I mean, sometimes it's just like, I know that, uh, like I have a romantic views of life sometimes. And I'm like, I, I can tell like, okay, this is special. This is different. You know, this is different from what other, you know, and maybe it's just my perception also of how I go through my life. But I'm like, okay, this is different. This, this is, the, you know, like this is a unique experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from most of my life, I mean, it took me 30 years. I mean, I was always a writer, but I was a writer that didn't write. Right. Uh, and I, I struggled a lot to actually get to sit and write. And I've only been writing, uh, uh, you know, on a day, you know, like a more committed, disciplined uh, since 2015. Oh. And but it took me my whole life you know, to actually get to that. And I don't, you know, it, it's like the idea that I thought I was going to be strike, you know, struck by, a, you know, the, the divine intervention and go, okay, now I'm going to write, right. and it just, you know, but you know, that's not how writing works. And, and I think that's why a lot of people want to write, but don't write is that they think that the inspiration will come and they will push you to sit. And it's the opposite. You have to actually sit to get the inspiration and actually write. And it took me a long time. I mean, it's embarrassing that it took me that long to figure it out. But um, 
Yeah, well, it's, you know, and also I was pushed into it because I said, I wanted to direct. Direct is my, like, the thing that I really gets me, like, that's what I want to do. I want to direct movies. And that's why I left Laos. Uh, you know, I was like, okay, I need, I, I have a dream that I haven't done. And I've done 10 years of this. This is going to be a chapter, but it's not going to be my whole life. And I see life uh, as chapters. And I was like, okay, my next chapter, I've got to make movies. So I started as a director, producer. And then to be honest, I couldn't find the stories. I read scripts here and there, but I could be. And I was like, you know, for, you know, for your first film and, and you need to have something that really resonate, you know, who are you as a director? And I just couldn't find it. So I, I started writing. And also as a single mom, it was quite hard to, to direct with two young kids. And oh, yeah. so I was like, okay, I'm going to start writing. And then I started writing and uh, within a few months, I got quarterfinals of the nickel which yeah. is like the highest uh, um the biggest competition for screenwriting and i it's quite hard to get in you know to to place and i was like okay that's a good sign sure uh, i think i'm on the you know I, I got something here and then just kept writing and and now for the last couple of years i i'm making a living as screenwriting which is uh you know, in, in five, six years, pretty, you know, I'm pretty happy with that. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, come, yeah. yeah. To make money as an artist, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I'm excited about that. But, you know, of course it's the, you know, I'm, I do some for a living and then I write my own projects and the sure. whole, you know, I, I'm on the path of my first film and, and hopefully one and two, because I'm working on two right now that I love uh, equally two stories that are uh, personal coming of age, similar similar themes, but very different, uh, stories. And, but it took, you know, it takes a while to find, you know, I mean, I love psychological thrillers. Don't get me wrong. This is like the psychological thrillers and coming of age are my two favorite movies to watch. Okay. All right. And they're very, you know, and the worlds are very different. So it's hard for the, if it, let's say that my branding has <laughs> taken it because it's easier for people to understand if you go, okay, thriller and horror, people get you. Yeah. If you say, well, I write thriller and I write coming of age and I actually write Christmas movies for a living. Yes. <laughs> people don't know where to, you know, like the pocket to put you in, but I don't mm -hmm. care. I, I can do, you know, I, I'm. I think I have different skills to do these, all of these that I love because it's the love. You know, I always tell my kids sometimes, you know, my son's a really good illustrator. My daughter's a really good artist and they worry about talent. And I said, you know, you both have talents, but what's going to make the difference is not the talent is the effort mm -hmm. and the love. Do you love it? If you love it, you, it will shine through. It will come through your art and, and, and people will feel that. Yep. That is all you have to worry, you know, and I know when you're young and, and probably that's why it took me so long to write is that you think, oh, am I good enough? Don't care about it. it's not important. Are you good enough? Do you love it enough? And if you love it enough and you put the effort in, eventually you will become good enough and you will surpass. But if you take two people with one with incredible talent and the other one with little talent that has a lot of love and puts in the effort. Eventually the person with less talent will, will overcome the person with more talent because of the effort. And, and so, you know, that's, yeah. you know, anyway, that's, that's um, um, how I see things, you know, if I love it enough, <laughs> I've loved it, you know, and I've waited for so long to actually do it that I feel I'm so grateful to the be able to The bell of the write. ball. 
you know, I'm, I, and, and, you know, I left, I had four companies. I had 50 employees in Laos when I left. Mm. People never thought I would leave. And I said, no, I'm, I'm done. I, I'm going to do something else because I, okay, I've done that. I'm a good entrepreneur. I'm successful. I'm doing this, but I, there's other things I want to do and life is short. So, you know, so I dropped everything and I just moved back to the West and started from scratch and uh, from zero and then started my company. And, you know, one thing led to the, the other to uh, writing. What a fantastic arc. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so I got, uh, I got women overcoming the impossible. That's exactly <laughs> it. I know. I'm, I'm with you right there. It's amazing. Um, so I want to, uh, do two more questions for you this week, uh, cause, uh, I have a client actually pretty soon too. Basically, incidentally, basically this is just kind of therapy in a way, cause I just ask like Socratic questions all the time. So you actually owe me $150 after this. Time. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> first of all, you mentioned love and I'm a big, big horror movie guy. I have been since I was like 10 years old when I saw the shining for the first time and it like traumatized me at 10. What are some of the favorite ones that you have, just for fun? Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, you said the shine. Yeah, um, my favorite, I, it's politically incorrect right now to say the ones that uh, I yeah. love. <laughs> because there's a director that is, uh, you know, been canceled uh, that I, I think was one of the first one, you know, with the Chinatown. And oh, <laughs> Yeah. Rosemary's baby. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, yeah. Love, you know, I don't, I, I love him as a director. I love his directing. It was yeah. definitely um, uh, one that made a big mark for me because I I love, you know, when you say big fan of horror, I'm a fan of psychological horror. Uh-huh. I don't like slash move like horror slash. I don't like that kind of stuff. I like the really psychological stuff, mm-hmm. psychological thriller, psychological horror, and so those are like, to me, the best example mm-hmm. of, of being, you know, uh, of the horror, but through the mind and not like slashing and stuff. Um, so yeah. So in that world, definitely Rosemary's baby, Chinatown. Um, um, yeah. And, and the tenant, you know, in another world, uh, you know, everything written by Kaufman, like the, Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Kaufman is, and now I can't wait to see uh, everything everywhere all at once. Yes, I'm seeing that. Found, I mean, the trailer makes me think, oh, it's like a Kaufman kind of. Uh, I am seeing it in about four hours. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cannot wait. So here's a uh, here's the trademark final question. This is for all the money. Final Jeopardy question, and that is, as a creative, when do you know you're done? Oh, that is the. <laughs> That is the bane of my existence. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it depends on the project. I feel that I'm, I struggle to reach that point. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. Is it ever done? <laughs> is it ever done? Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, art. I mean, at one point you have to um, get collaborators you know, and then I think it's an on, I think it's a living art form movies, mm-hmm. you know, because you, you write it, you write it, you rewrite it. I'm a big rewriter. Uh, and then you get collaborators and then you get to shoot that's the, the actors. So it, it evolves mm-hmm. and it evolves and it evolves even when people are watching 
because people will have different interpretation and continue yes. the conversation. So I don't know if it, it's ever done. Um, you know, I think there's a point maybe where you're ready to let go. I mean, you see, yeah. I brought it back to full circle. Exactly. That's my point of this whole <laughs> yeah, thing. It's the let go. It's, yeah. it's being able to let it go and, and let, you know, other people, because cinema is definitely a, a collaborative effort. So I think, you know, it's, it's being able to let it go to share it and let other people bring in their creative and mold it into something else and, uh, you know, and, and keep it going. So, you know, I, I, uh, but it's, it's a, it's definitely a struggle and the challenge to get to that point. Sure. And what a lovely answer. Part of the reason why I love doing this, and I ask every single artist, musician, writer, doesn't matter who it is, because I get a different answer almost every single time. It is so much fun to ask because you're right. It's about the letting go process. That's what I'm really trying to go for here, right? Yeah. It's that concept of presence, of Buddhism even, of I'm going to stay out of the results on this one because I am done. This is how this is finished. And I do love your idea, though, your twist on it about how it's an evolving process because you're right. At the end of the day, me watching everything all at once, I'm going to have a different experience than perhaps the director even intended. Yeah. And, and then your interpretation and, and, and the discussion, you know, I think this is one of the things that I miss that I miss. And I think that's missing now, you know, and I was really uh, listening to uh, uh, an interview. Um, oh, I, I'm going to screw up his last name. Uh, uh, Peter uh, Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich. Yeah, Bogdanovich. Yeah. He was saying this about like how we used to have like a huge cinema, you know, the, this magazine that I was fascinated, like the conversations about cinema in terms of art, you know, not just the Marvel and stuff like mm -hmm used to be so important. You know, we used to have, uh, you know, Siskel and Ebert, you know, like sure. people used to discuss movies much more before. Now it's just, you know, oh, I liked it, thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, like, uh, you know, like um, post on Facebook. But I, I love having the conversation, like going to a movie and sit down and talk about it. Yeah. For an hour and, and, and see where, and as a writer, it's really important to know, like whatever you intended, no one is going to feel exactly the same. And sometimes right. this is a good, good uh, reminder when you are getting notes on a script that, you know, people will love it. People will hate it. People won't get it. You know, I mean, the power of the dog is a very good example of how I was like standing up in my room, applauding to the screen, how brilliant and have, you know, how I saw the master like behind everything and all the little threads and then people go, nothing's happening. And I'm like, <laughs> right. oh my God, you know, but that's the thing. That's what art is. You know, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank you so much. Would, Thank you so dead. much. You're such a great, like, it's, this is such a great conversation. Well, you thank know, you so much. We, we oh. know we could talk for hours. Um, but again, thank you so much. What a wonderful person you are. What a wonderful explanation of presence and letting go and female empowerment and on and on and on. So uh, please say goodbye to the dazzled throng, Isabel. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you.